Welcome to Loop Me In, the podcast community for parents and carers on raising children with disabilities. Join presenters Dr. Lisa Interlegi and Christine Christopoulos and their guests in sharing experiences, information and support ideas to help children with disabilities flourish. Loop Me In is brought to you weekly on platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher to name a few. You can learn more, connect to the Loop Me In community and listen to more episodes on our website, loop-me-in.com.au. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Loop Me In's first ever forum. So Loop Me In started about 12 months ago, and we're already in production for our third series of podcasts. We've had great feedback from most families and service providers and have learned so much ourselves. And we're keen to learn more, thus why we love the parent community and all your feedback that comes with having these podcasts and forums. So I think we'll begin by introducing ourselves to the people that don't know us. I'm Christine. I'm a mum of three and I have a son, Matthew, with an intellectual disability and autism. And Lisa? Yes, I'm Lisa Interlegi and I also have a 22-year-old son with an intellectual disability and autism. And that just so happens that... uh, Uh, Matthew and my son Louis are best friends so um, that makes for some interesting photos and videos and and family times yeah and I have another son who's an older an older brother to Louis so um, I guess that it's nice on a cold winter's night just to be sitting and chatting about something that we have a shared interest in and um, really that's the well-being of our children and you know what we've found out in our journey that is that you know parents and particularly mums are, are great at sharing their shared interest and and their tips on on how to make um, the experience and the the well-being of their children who have disabilities better And so um, we wanted to talk tonight about the NDIS review that the AOP government had promised through their election campaigning. And we also tipped in at the last minute the um, National Autism Strategy because I think the two are a little bit linked um, and it's good for those people who have an interest in autism perhaps to get your perspectives as well. So um, I guess what we just should start with... NDIS and kind of reflect on where we are. And it was introduced, as you recall, by the AOP government under Julia Gillard in 2013. So it seems like a long time ago to enable people with disabilities to have more control and choice in the pursuit of their goals. And our proposition is that parents have a special first line care for children with disabilities. And while we acknowledge their human rights, obviously we're often in the position of exercising control on their behalf um, until they have the ability to do so. So just where we're kind of at with the NDIS plot, we've got a new government, as you well know, after a long election campaign, and we have a new minister who was sworn in, Bill Shorten. The previous government had warned that the NDIS, NDIS is financially unsustainable with the predictions that the costs could grow to about $40 billion by 2024-25, and that's about $8.8 billion above their estimates, their annual estimates. In 2021, you'll probably remember, and I think we're all pretty um, shocked that the government had said that they were introducing independent assessments, and their argument was that that was going to make it a more equitable system. That was abandoned. Obviously, um, there was a lot of pressure from disability advocates. 
but there was between 2020 and 21 a reported cuts to funding of an average of 4% per plan. So for somebody who was getting about $71,000 in their NDIS plan, that meant that their funding dropped in 12 months to about 68000 In a six-month period, we've seen an increase in disputes and that's increased by 400%. I think that's uh, there's about 1,400 people seeking um, reviews under the Administrative Appeals Tribunal in that six months from July to January this year. In the costs uh, that the government is spending, I think it's about $21 million off the top of my head, but the, the costs that the government is spending on um, lawyers uh, in those review processes has ballooned out. Lisa, I'm always curious to know where, I know clearly we can find out the cost of the, the tribunal things have always been around, but the information about reduction to plans, I'm curious to know where that information comes from. Does anyone know? Like I hear it bandied around, but I'm never sure yeah, what that means. Yeah, I think it's not something that the NDIA necessarily report. I think it's more on uh, external reporting to the NDIA and it certainly has been reported in um, by the ABC and and some media. It has. I I guess I just wonder if... Yeah, I don't don't know. That one one I'm curious about. I know about the other ones, but I am curious about that one, that's all. So the ARP campaigned on a review of the um, NDIS program and one of the things that they said that they wanted to co-design it with people with a disability which seems really sensible to me but on behalf of children it's a bit hard and so our proposition is that parents should have a voice in that process as well and that that it should be co-designed with parents and so yeah so this is why we called this chat we thought let's get your views and your insights we want it to be sort of a productive or constructive conversation and see whether we can, you know, start to try and feed a, a you know, parent voice into the into that review. So the government has also said that they're going to um, implement expert reviews, so that if plans are cut, but cut for by more than twenty percent, so that's a significant cut, as a fifth of your funding, they will implement external reviews, expert reviews, to make sure that it's not arbitrary that they are going to lift their staffing levels at their NDIA, so that's good. That's a good thing. They're going to crack down on unregistered providers who are accessing NDIS funds. They're going to review the NDIS pricing, uh, markets and compliance, and develop a comprehensive workforce strategy. And I think that's one of the things that Chris and I have been talking about for 12 months is the pricing issue, like how to... You know, there seems to be wild, wild variation in, in um, pricing and, and how has that been controlled. And they're going to try and fix the pathway for um, appeals and to make it simpler and more efficient and, I guess, try and reduce the what they see as wastage in funding through lawyers um, having to go to the tribunal. I know who did the research in relation to plans being cut. Oh, good. Oh. So it's a guy called Billy King. He's the director and owner of Peak Plan Management. So they're one of the biggest plan management organisations in the world. I actually went to a presentation earlier this year where the whole presentation was based on three years of data that he'd pulled together around plan because they're a plan manager. They see people's plans, mm. and he's basically he was basically mapping 
politics in theory versus people's plans versus promises versus COVID. There's a lot of COVID stuff in there as well. And then also plotted if you didn't finish your plan, like if you didn't use all the funds, how much, if there was a drop, if there was an increase, and um, the social demographics around that. So it's a guy called Billy King and well, um, he's the... That is interesting. The, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, that he'd be worth um, while tapping into, I think, because... Um, Absolutely. You know, it is those issues are important because I know that, you know, if it's a bit like in business, right, if you don't spend your budget in a financial year, you lose part of that budget for the next year. Mm. So you kind of don't want to shoot yourself in the foot and not get the right support for your child, do you? There was a great article, Dr. Annie Bamburi, who talked about the rural areas of Australia and how, yes, they got their plans, but there aren't any service providers in those areas. And she's trying to encourage, encourage telehealth Zooms so that at least they these families get something because what happens is they get X amount of money, they haven't used it because they're on a wait list, and then they lose that money the next year. So it's just trying to find different ways these families can use the providers. What we're looking at is how confident are you guys in understanding your NDIS process? Like where do you get your information for changes that might be happening? I source my information from you amazing ladies. Otherwise I'd be (laughs) fairly clueless. Yeah, so community, yeah. Absolutely. And look, also we've just always luckily jagged quite a good local area coordinator, I guess, and have really placed a lot of trust in them. But, but you know, we've been lucky in that regard and I know not everyone is. Do you have the same person every year or do, the, the, do you experience turnover? Because that's one of the things that I experience is that it seems to be a different person every year and they're yeah. all lovely, but you kind of have to start from scratch again the next year. Lisa, we have never had the same one ever, mm. <laughs> never. So yeah, it's just it's just been sort of luck of the draw. And look, our funding has dropped every single year that we've received funding. And I think because of COVID last year, we actually ran out of funding because we had to use so much. But yeah, it's all it's all a bit haphazard. But yeah, thank goodness for community. And I think that's the thing with the coordinator. I've been lucky to have the same one for two plans now. And I'm able to communicate with her during the year. And I think that's been great because she does communicate with me and say, hey, I think Matthew would really like this or you're not really using your money there and this is how you've got to use it. I think, yeah, and I have been lucky because she's almost knows Matthew now even though she's only met him twice. And I think that's a really important, especially for young families who are going to be doing this for a very long time. Chris, is that through the NDIA directly or is it? Um, yeah, just the NDIA directly. I've just not Not a lack. No. No. Fascinating, yeah. So I have just been like I've had her two years in a row. She's not very resourceful, but she kind of just knows, okay, you're doing this now, so you probably need to go that way. She's been good. And I think it's important, like Madeline said, it's very hard to go. I've done a couple of years where I've had to explain Matthew and nothing really changes. So it is a bit tedious. So just keeping up with the news on, you know, what's about to change or, you know, when they were talking about independent assessments and stuff like that, do you get any correspondence or messaging or anything or do you go onto the NDIS website? Because sometimes I'm on there, I happen to be poddling around for doing Louis' um, fund acquittal but, uh, and I poddle onto some news. But 
is there any kind of proactive communication? Not directly from the NDIS. I get things from Association for Children with a Disability, which is sometimes things show up in that email link. Yeah. And, you know, the NDIs would say that they have things on their website and they have them in plain English and things like that. But I can't say I've looked there very much. Hmm. I, I should say that I also work in the sector and I I do audits of ECI plans so that our organisation creates. So I actually do have an insight into their website, their internal website. So sometimes I get my information that way. So I have an advantage in terms of getting information, I guess. doesn't make it easier to get a plan. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. How do you think that that can be improved, though? I guess that my proposition is the more informed and capable we we enable parents, the better... They've got everyone's emails. Like, they've got everyone's information. It would be... Mm. Certainly it would be um, interesting to have emails once a month, even, you know, once a month newsletter from the NDIS, what's changed, you know, what's new. Is anyone um, not self-fund on at the moment? Self-managed, sorry? Uh, we self-manage, Chris. Yeah, because I feel like that's the senses I'm getting a lot of families are, which then is difficult if you can't find information, isn't it? I wonder whether having someone consult and, and giving you that information is a better option or whether self-managing is. I know personally I work in the sector and I get my most updated information from people I know who work in plan management because they have to know the information, to tell you yeah. the truth. Support coordinators quite often don't know the information, but mm-hmm. um, plan managers, because they have to financially acquit it, in theory, they always seem to be most up-to-date. And if I've ever got a question about something that's happening, that's the first person I'd call as a colleague that's in plan management, normally in a, like a relationship role and go, hey, what does this mean in real talk? But I also follow a guy called Carl. He's got a disability himself. He's Victorian-based. He used to work at the NDIS. There's quite a few people like him that are, have worked for the NDIS and now they do a lot of posting solely around changes to the NDIS from the perspective of someone with a disability. So not so much from the parental perspective. And he's got, I don't know, he's in a wheelchair. That's, I know about, he's very, he's very well spoken and he knows what he's talking about. So I quite often see his stuff in social media and stuff like that. So. So I guess looking at the application process, and I think most of us here have had a plan for a few years now, how did you know whether your child would be eligible for NDIS funding? How was it through your school community? Chris, I think that we, I probably even learned from maybe even you, <laughs> someone yeah. like that. But I think once, you know, pretty much anyone who qualified to be in a specialist school setting was going to qualify for NDIS funding was sort of anecdotal going around. Do you think that's about right? Yeah, I agree with you that time when we all when we all came in when it started and so the information yeah we were just kind of automatically transitioned in if we were in a special school so we got called but um again i work with staff who are battling you know to support but we've got a special team that's not funded by the eis 
that works with vulnerable families to try and help them with the application process now because it is so hard. And, you know, if you don't have therapists and things like that helping you, it's a real challenge. So I think we all kind of, those of us who got in in 2013 or whenever it was, we were kind of very lucky. Yeah, and it's costly too then, isn't it, really? Because if you don't have your team of therapists or you, or you and it's complex because if you don't actually have a team of therapists because that's hard to find and the right therapists, then that can make it even more difficult. I think also, and I don't know how you guys feel about how it it isn't very easy to understand, is it? You kind of like I've met young families that sort of have no idea where to start or what exactly what to be asking for, especially if their kids are just still in school or in early learning. Is that how you guys felt with that? Yeah, look, no question. And I still meet, you know, class is made up of some kids that are quite a bit younger than her. And I was speaking to a mum on the weekend who's sort of got this funding package like we all have, but she has absolutely no idea how to spend it. And she said to me that she hadn't even realised that she was allowed to spend some of that money on a carer to do things with her daughter. So it just, yeah, it just goes to show you there are people who, you know, even well-resourced people who Mm. don't know what to do with their funding or or don't really understand the system. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I mean, Lisa and I are still learning. Like there's so many things out there that we, I mean, I wouldn't know about and the lived ability, like there's so much out there that we don't know about, and especially we're going into, a lot of us here are going into a, another phase of our adulthood for our children. So that's a, that's a completely different area. But looking at the younger kids, you know, I, I would imagine some families from backgrounds that are non-English is not their first language, they probably don't even know what a speech or an OT does. Well, we've had lots of examples of that too, Chris, in the process of doing this podcast, haven't we? I was having my nails done a couple of weeks ago and um, my nail technician said to me, oh, could I put my girlfriend on? She's got a child and they're struggling at school and they're not getting funding and, you know, it's a Vietnamese family and they had no idea where to go and it's just that kind of informal accidental contact that helps, you know, try and win their way through what is a very complex process? I agree. And I think when we moved, you know, moved into the system, we already had respite through council. So, you know, we kind of went and we we're already using an OT. So we kind of went along knowing what supports we wanted to replicate in the NDI system. But if you're coming in from nothing, it's really, you know, no, I imagine there's kind of not a handout. And I, got the price guide and kind of read through it and sort of said, oh, you know, yes, we need that or we need that. But not everyone has those those skills and there's not sort of an easy sort of resource about what sort of things are available and how they how they could those things can support your family or your child. So yeah, I guess uh, yeah, I guess I guess that's what the planners are supposed to do. And certainly I look at the the planners that work with us and, and that they have an idea of what could be funded and so they encourage the families. You know, I never knew that you could get funding for picture communication, you know, the compic pictures and to make up picture books and things like that. But who knew you can throw $500 into a plan for that and get a speech therapist to do an assessment of, of what you need. So it is a bit of the luck of the draw, I guess, of what your planner, you know, recommends that you do. 
So how do you think it needs to be improved? I guess what I'm hearing is that the planner that we get almost needs to be someone that we're committed to for a longer period than one year and then they can help us on that journey. I think I agree with a lot of what just said, Chris, and I think that you definitely need continuity with with people who who get to know your child. I think you're you're one of the lucky ones who've had straight to the NDIA and and has had some continuity with people who've helped you with your plan. But I also think that you know one of the first things that went out the window for many people was support coordination. And, you know, I was really privy to seeing what that was all about when first got her plan. We had a lot of, quite a lot of money in there for support coordination and um, I was self-managing. We got support coordination, I think two, maybe three years in a row. And I went through one, two, three, I went through four support coordinators and I kept sacking one to get another who I thought might be able to actually give me more information than I was giving them. And one after the other, they were just drawing down on this money and literally drawing down. I would have a telephone conversation and then I'd log on to my plan and, and they would have charged, you know, maybe $500 for that that telephone conversation. It was an apps. What I witnessed was an absolute rot, and um, I ended up saying, "I'm begging you to take it out because it is just completely wasted money." In in our case, I agree with you. I mean, the thing is, it's not our money that's being wasted; it's the NGOs' money. But it's actually our time. Like, you know, that was what frustrated me about that whole process. That you know, you'd spend the time with them and you wouldn't get anything out of it. So That's right, but I, I also just think, um, you know, for the people who don't understand English, for people who aren't mm-hmm. as articulate, who can't read and write the same level to, you know, there are so many people out there. And for a very long time, I kept getting phone calls from friends, from, from family who knew someone with a disability. Oh, would you mind just chatting to this person to help them? You know, and I ended up, you know, people were going, you should start a business. And, you know, I just couldn't do it because I just wanted to help these really, these poor people navigate this system, which which seems like it was so much easier when we joined. I do think we were we were lucky being, being sort of one of the first. And, um, but I... You know, it it has to start with more explanation to people about what they can and can't spend it on, you know. Um, equally as saying she, she realised what she could spend it on, you know, I've had conversations with people who've gone, you know, I've just gone out and bought this for my child and I'm, I'm like, what? Like th- there is no way that falls under. How is your plan worded that you can manipulate that to be in your plan? And so I think people have a real lack of education about what it can be spent on. Didn't you go, to, though, to a, a seminar thing that you found very helpful right early on? Yeah, I went to I went to so many seminars to mm. try and educate myself and also to learn. I I can't even remember the name. I went to like a, a week long course on how to write a plan, you know. But a lot of those people aren't running them anymore, or and and most people don't have time to go to stuff like that, you know, for day after day 
to learn how to write or to what to ask for and how to ask for it, you know, and you're so right. We were connected already with therapists and specialists and so we, we weren't starting from a raw base. Mm, that's right. And I wonder how um, how educated the therapists are as well because, you know, it's great to say, oh, I could have a shopping list of things and oh, I could throw that in because you're kind of either coming from a knowledge base of what your child needs or you just think it's a good idea at the time. To what extent are the therapists, you know, helping you articulate what the child's needs are and therefore, in you know, helping you navigate, you know, your plan and what to ask for? I will say that the, the therapist recommendations I've seen in the ECIS space are pretty good. And I guess that's the thing now. I mean, we went to Noah's Ark when we were that age, but now they probably are hopefully hooking in earlier and getting getting something to help them with those goals. So looking yeah. at the annual reviews, ladies, ladies and gentlemen, how do you prepare for your annual review? What's something... Do you consult with someone? Do you do it yourself? How do you go about that? I know that each, well, the last plan I actually begged for a two-year plan because I was, I get so stressed every year about the amount of work that has to go into preparing for a plan and it was always immediately after my summer holiday and I was like, I spent all summer holiday sitting on a beach with a pad and a pen, you know, and I was just like, I have to change this up. So, I went for a a different plan and actually had to end up going for a review last time because it was so significantly cut that I just knew that I had to try and get them to review it. And they did review it and and that worked out really well because now I'm in the middle of the year and I got a two-year plan so I can actually relax for a little bit and not have to think about... um, think about preparing for it. But I think the whole process of preparation, I mean, you know, having to get reports from everybody is, um, you know, what happens if if you take, you know, at the moment we're taking a bit of a sabbatical from speech therapy just because, you know, I've got such a resistance from my child to go to speech at the minute. So I'm like, look, she talks fairly well. I'm going to give it a, a break and uh, let her do other things. But you know, I'm sitting here in the back of my head going, gosh, how long do I leave this for? Because I've got to get her back on board before we have to submit for the next plan. And, you know, that's almost the wrong reasons. You know what I mean? Like, Well, and, and that's for me that's the problem with the use it or lose it. Yeah. Because mm. if you say at this point I don't need it and you even leave it out for a whole two-year plan, you should feel confident that in three years you can go back and go, you know what, we need we need a booster on this and that it will be accepted and, yeah. But you know it won't. You know, you actually know that if you don't use it, and, and that was the problem in COVID, there was so much funding that we didn't use, which is why it was cut so much, and then you go back into, you know, semi-normal living and, um and you're like, there's no way. I guess if there's a, a review at the moment and they're wanting to hear things, that's what they need to hear. That you know, mm. if we can be honest with them, we won't feel a need to use money just for the sake of using it. That's so right. And I, I think that's a really valid point. But I also, you know, who who started and came up with the price list? Yeah. You know, yeah. What, exactly. what person? 
start, I mean, I think it started all, all those years ago at $42 an hour in midweek mm. for an unskilled person who, who who's very skilled in terms of relating to your kid or getting to know your kid and what they have to do. But, you know, you don't have to do a university degree to be a support worker. Who started at $42 and where, where are we sitting at now? $60 an hour for mm. midweek and then it goes up to almost 100 on the weekend. I mean, of course it's not sustainable if right. you are paying those rates. And, you know, and then you've got the, the problem of, you know, when, when, when these support workers, they know what they can be paid. And so, you know, many, many people won't work for under what the top rate is and other people, you know, so it's so fraught with... I think um, the thing is that with organisations, there are overheads that do scoop up that money. So that's a tricky thing. I know I know what you're dealing with because you're dealing with people who take the whole amount for themselves, you know, because that's all that there is. But sometimes organisations can, you know, take up to 30% of that for their overheads. So it's tricky. I think you're right. The costings need to be re-looked at because I think it benefits, as much as it benefits our kids to have this package, it is definitely benefiting the service providers a lot of service providers are saying they can't make ends meet hmm. so and yeah, that's, I don't know. that's what's really interesting is since the model changed you know a lot of service providers like just said are just there's so many who've gone under because they can't make ends meet i th- i think when it comes to that there's a difference between block funding and ndis funding and I know coming from a block-funded model and doing a transition for a rather large organisation to an NDIS model, the way organisations made block funding work was if you had if you had a day service and you had 20 participants accessing it, they didn't have to access it every day to have 20 participants there. So you were being paid to have 20 participants five days a week, but you might only have 18 there that day, the next day you got 15, yeah. when now because they're having to bill individually, it's making the service providers more accountable for the hours and the service they're actually offering the participant. So and I, I've a lot of the organisations I've seen that have gone under probably might have not dealt with the accountability around the hours as much because it actually there was actually more money in NDIS per hour than there was in block funding. But in block funding, you didn't have to justify every minute. You just had to justify it every year. I mean, we, I don't know, we run a support coordination team in and I was just speaking to the manager today um, and he's not got a best interest in, and we're talking about whether we could provide behaviour support and he said, oh, I think it, we, it charges more. And he said, we need to do something because we're certainly not breaking even with support coordination. So, you know, I mean, this is, these are people I trust. They're not grabbing the money off. It just so... I think there are differences between organisations and individuals. But I think also we've given so much choice. I mean, it's all about choice and control. And so, you know, we as um, parents feel quite empowered that, you know, from literally one month to the next or one day to the next, you can say, I'm changed my mind. I don't want my kid doing that anymore and um, pulling them out. So, you know, like saying the accountability is so much more for the providers now and and we have flexibility 
which which must be awfully hard to manage with um, in terms of, you know, trying to budget and then, you know, you might budget for 20 students every day and then, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, five of them pull out or they go on holidays, we're going on holidays. I just put in a, a note to say, you know, my child won't be there for two weeks and they don't get that funding. It's, They'll um, just increase the ratio for us, Bindi. sorry about that it's fine so when you're doing your review are you getting external people to help you or you just managing that review yourself I'm just muddling through on my own Chris apart from what advice I get from you people really Mm. I do my own Chris I, I keep spreadsheets and then work out how much reviews of each bit and go in and and try and forecast what we need going forward in each of those areas. But what that doesn't do is kind of help me think about what I don't know about. Mm. So I'm aware of that. So sometimes I might pick something up from someone else and think, oh, I wonder if I could include that. But, um, but yeah, I think that it is good. I've often thought it would be good to have that support coordination just for one session Mm. (laughs) before a plan review to sort of pick their brains about what else could go in. Yeah, it also um, means that you have to um, you have to have foresight about the the development of your child and the milestones that they're going to go through, and you know their changing needs as they move forward. And so you're not always predicting that. So, for example, Louis had a three year plan, and um, which has been great, but you know now he he really needs some extra care and uh, you know care support, and he needs some uh, to start to build in some uh, respite. And um, because he's been on a long plan, it's been a bit hard unless I go back and review the plan, which I'm not necessarily wanting to do. So, you know, you do have to be able to plan ahead and know to your point, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. So you kind of get yourself locked in a a bit of a corner. Yeah, I mean, I know they talk about you can call for a review in the middle of a plan, but as you say, that that can be kind of a pain in the neck too. If we're talking about recommendations, it would almost be good to have a like a top-up request option, you know, mm-hmm. that you could go in and just mm-hmm. put in a specific item for a specific thing that just goes to a planner and they can or an approver, because the person who plans isn't the person who actually approves the funding. And uh, yeah, that would be an interesting process. Yeah, I think so. I, I think there is a thing like that. It's called a light touch review. Okay. Oh, you're right. You yeah. are right. Yeah. But you have to know how to use it to, you have to know how to ask to, to get it in theory. But yeah. yeah. So in terms of management, are we all self-managed here? Yeah, thank you. We are, but I must say we um, went to a, a careers expo thing at school and talked to a plan manager, and it did sound a little bit interesting, you know, just to give them. Oh, hang on, with our plan manager, what's the difference between the person who pays the bills? That's not a plan manager, is it? Or is it? Pretty much does what we were just talking about, assesses what your child needs and takes it there for you and gets a fee, I think, an annual fee from you. That's what a plan manager does. They're doing the administration, aren't they? They're doing the the, the payment of the bill. No, I think isn't there, so I should know this, isn't there a financial manager, a financial management and there's plan management. So a plan manager deals with the financial side of it, so they get paid a yearly fee to basically pay the bills. That's what I thought, yeah. And and then you've got a supports coordinator 
and they do the the, the, the paperwork planning side of it. So yeah. a, a plan manager, I think per participant gets about $1,700 a year. Yeah. Um, so it's a volume business, but they Great. also know a lot about the industry um, and they have to, to build their businesses to the size they have. They have to know all the ins and outs because they have to make sure that it's going to, um, they've got an accountability, I guess. Mm. But yeah, they, they do the financial side of it. But they don't have a role really in the plan review. They're just, as you say, payers. Yeah, they um, just, they're just <clears> paying it. But also normally with you, when you're with a plan manager, they are prolific emailers, to tell you the truth, around changes to things and stuff like that. So they do, they're prolific at it, to tell you, like, you'd probably want to stop getting emails from them a lot of the time. But, yeah, so they, they do share information. They just don't, have, they don't implement it for you. I feel like there's another role in the system that's not the plan manager who pays the bills and is not the support, support coordinator. There's another role. I can't remember what it is right now. But, yeah, I guess the support coordinators are the ones that theoretically should also help you prepare for a plan. It's In theory, just, below a support coordinator, there is a um, – so support coordination has three levels. There is a lower level. So you've got level two, which is what most people get in their plans, and the lowest level is called support connection. It's a model where it's the support coordinator's job is, in theory, to teach you how to self-manage yourself. Okay. So you, that's Because the NDIS want you to move to self-management yeah. yes. because it's cheaper. But it's, you know, I, I don't know, for those of us who do it, I don't know how sustainable it is in the long term. Mm. I think it's cheaper and they also look at it as um, they get to tick boxes around choice and control because in theory if you're doing it, they, they can tick the box that you've got full choice and control over, mm. over how the f- funds are being spent. It makes them look good, to say the truth. Exactly. And that's that money that you pay comes off your child's funding. Mm. No, it's additional. The for a plan manager? Yeah. No, that's over and above. So when they build the budget, that's yes. a separate item. It doesn't come out of your funding. Separate item line. Yeah, okay. So, but it's costing the government. But it's sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Which is why the encouragement to self-manage. But self-manage. Um, some of the people that are asked to self-manage or are allowed to self-manage, it's, it's criminal really. <laughs> I can tell you, I've seen plan managers when I've worked go to a service provider and say, you cannot build that. And like the provider has done things outside of the scope and they've said, you, you can't build for that. And they've, they've really stood up for the participant and supported them from a, from a financial perspective. So some, for some participants, they're really, really good if they're trying to manage their, themselves, but don't have a full knowledge or to have the, the team around them, their family members, the, the plan manager. I've seen I've seen them go to service and go. We're not going to pay that invoice because you you weren't supposed to do that. You're not supposed to bill that. That's not within your service agreement with that person because they also see the service agreements. Mm-hmm. So um, so if you got a service agreement and it says you don't have public holidays, and then they and the service agreement says that the support provider will contact you ten days before your public holiday and offer you another day, and they don't, and then they. Give the support worker turns up on the public holiday, and then you go. Well, I'm not supposed to have public holidays, and they go. Well, we can bill you for two hours, and then they bill it. The plan manager turns around and goes, "What well, wasn't in the service room?" Yeah. So you can't bill that. And and that's the the drawback also for people who are self managing, and there is a lot more flexibility in the way you um, choose to spend those funds. Um, you can kind of 
you know, move things from one category to another and, and take a bit from one from the other. So I guess that's the payback. Moving on to support now, how easy has it been for you to find service providers in your area? Can I talk about that? Hi, guys. Um, we haven't said much, but I both here listening and very interested. We've had a lot of trouble accessing therapists. Before COVID, we did have our son seeing therapists at home, you know, they, as they do, they come and visit. But with both of us working and the therapists having hours that uh, it, it was really difficult for us to accommodate. So they, a, a lot of them were part-time and they wanted to finish by four o'clock. I mean, that made it very, very hard and we can't be the only parents experiencing that. Mm. So we ended up having to just say we can't sustain this, you know, because we kept one of one or both of us had to be missing work on a regular basis to see it, you know, to be here for a speechy or be here for a physio, you know, an OT, whatever the therapists were. So we tried to find therapists who had different hours. I'm still speaking pre-COVID. We went on to a wait list and um, it was with and I'm going to name them because I was just, I just, it was ridiculous what happened with them. We were on a wait list for over a year and they kept on saying, oh, yes, you know, it's just a few more weeks. And then they'd say, oh, uh, that person resigned or this or that. They just strung us along. And eventually they just said, after stringing us along for, I think, over a year, they said, oh, we can't find anyone for you. So see you later. Anyway, then fortunately, I suppose, COVID happened and so everything kind of, you know, we, we had to put everything on hold because that time was crazy, as I'm sure it was for everybody, and was never going to engage with anybody online. So, yeah, um, since then, since COVID, you know, we're now dealing with different issues and so speech and OT and so on are down the list of priorities and we're having to look at psychology and, you know, anxiety and behavioural things that have been going wrong for him. So that's, they're our focus at the moment. And we've actually been really fortunate and think we have found a, um, she called a, a positive behaviour support specialist. Yep. And actually I have said it to a number of people. This is the first person I think who's ever actually helped us. You know, she seems to, uh, she, yeah, she seems to have just, understood all the things that we've been trying to explain to people about for years she got it so we've been really happy with her and then we're just accessing a a counsellor through so at the moment therapy is fantastic but we've had a lot of trouble with it in the past Mm. I just wanted to say something about therapists too and it's a little bit off that off this topic but just while we are speaking about them so I work in a primary school and I am on the so I, I deal with all of the external therapists and, you know, the families of children with disability in school. And what I have seen from coming from a, a different perspective, and it's really been quite upsetting when, you know, we've all got children who have very high needs. I work in a mainstream school and a lot of people are accessing NDIS funding. And I mean, I know the children, I know their children, I, I work with them, 
And I find that a lot of funding is being unnecessarily used by people. And for instance, uh, one mother might say to me, oh, she's, she needs to have uh, her child needs some speech therapy, or we might even recommend that they get speech therapy. And then there's a particular organisation quite locally here who will have the, the parent engages a, a speechy and the next minute the organisation is recommending an OT and a psychologist as well. And because the kids are under eight or whatever the cutoff age is, it all they don't need a diagnosis. Seven, yeah. So these therapists are just kind of creating jobs and it's so expensive, isn't it? Is it $198 an hour or something now? It's just insane. So that's something that really needs to be addressed. You know, there are a lot of families who desperately need the funding. When I hear about families having funding cut and some of the genuine cases uh, uh, that I know have had funding cut and all of this rip-off is happening. I'm going to tell you something interesting. In the ECIS side of things, they have to be assessed at a certain level to get funding and I feel in my bones that that means they have to be able to show that they need kind of two different therapists. Like if they just, just had OT or just had speech, they probably wouldn't be eligible for the ECIS funding. So, What's ECIS funding? That's the funding that they get before the early early intervention. Early childhood, yeah. So mm. it's, it's a slightly so, different model. And they they really they would never get the sort of community participation or other support, the core supports that we get. Um, it mm. really is focused very much on therapy, therapy, therapy at that age. Mm. And you know, I mean I would I wouldn't begrudge that to any child or family who genuinely needs it. Of course, I wouldn't. I mean, I, I I live it, and I and that's my that's where I work. It's uh, you know, it's something I'm really passionate about. But I do see it being, yeah. Misused. You do wonder if the organisations kind of gouging a bit too. Oh, absolutely. Also, I I know of one family who they actually went to a, a psychologist and swapped psychologists until they got a diagnosis for their son, and it ended up only being provisional anyway, because they wanted funding. And, yeah, it's outrageous, actually, just the sorts of things that happen. Mm. There's genuine need and that's something that, you know, absolutely I would support that, of course. But when I see these sorts of things happening, I think, well, there's a lot of families who are missing out who genuinely need it and we're all going to miss out in the end if this sort of practice happens. And that's just in a very small school one tiny little, if it's happening across the board, then there's a lot of funding being wasted and we'll pay the price in the end. Yeah, no, I think that absolutely that's um, that's absolutely true because we, again, Chris and I have heard stories of people who've got like enormous amounts of money and people who don't, who actually need it, get very small amounts of funding allocated and it doesn't seem to be um, equitable that there's some working of the system somewhere, you know. Mm. Do do you kind of feel like you have a voice if you have concerns, or you know that you that you're concerned about something, but you know not wanting to go to a tribunal hearing? Do you feel like you have a voice anywhere? Yeah, I haven't looked, and um, you know, I guess that's that's just another thing to add to the list of jobs to do, isn't it? You know, just to kind of try and find who to complain to or who to 
who to point it out to. But. Correct. And I feel like you have to be a pretty strong advocate. Mm, um, that way. And that's not everyone. And I feel like I am a strong advocate, but I wasn't able to correct the stupid mistake in a plan the planner made. So I was able to get something, I can't remember what, something changed. But, yeah, there was a stupid plan and I explained it to them and showed why it was a mistake and, you know. So, yeah, you do have to be in for the fight, I think, and people don't have that energy. I also think people who are on their own out there kind of don't even know what a good plan or a bad plan is, like in terms of financial. Like I've met people that, you know, get five hours of carer hours a week and think that's fantastic and their child needs a lot more than that. So I think that's also an area that it needs a bit more focus on. And there's no way families of, you know, non-speaking families are going to be going to a tribunal when they can hardly understand English themselves. Like they'll be too scared. But I think you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, that's you right. Know, unless, unless you know, we're back to the the topic of community unless you you are spending the time talking to other people who ha- have similar um, maybe abilities or disabilities to your children in terms of sort of needs and and um, you just don't know you don't know what you don't know and it's really hard I think to get information on um, things you don't know about so I think schools and organizations like do have again you know they've got time and staffing issues and so on as well but I think they do have a big responsibility to be Mm. helping families they're the ones who have the most contact you know know the most about I found sorry um the association for children with a disability to be amazing Mm. and uh, even though is no longer considered a child, I still pay a, a very small membership. I think they charge a year and um, they send through newsletters and updates and, you know, this whole election, they were fantastic at, at, at really just showing you right down to um, really specifics about what government was supporting what. And, um, you know, and these are things that, you know, there is no way that I've got time to sift through all this information that they're putting out and 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 understand and know what what what's behind it but they they had a really great synopsis and um you know I will continue to be part of that just because they do and they're there if you if you are a member uh, you know I think it's something like twenty dollars a year or something and it's um they'll talk to you you know and I remember when was in the education system and and I needed some assistance with how something was treated and they were just wonderful, really fantastic. So Yeah, that was what I was going to say. They've got a really good parent support line and those parent support workers know a lot about the NDIs as well. They do. They've got a great knowledge base. So if you've had a plan and then the budget of your plan's gone down, what what were the reasons for that? What are they telling you the reasons are for that decrease? Is it because you just haven't used the money and so the next year they've just taken it away from you? Well, in, in our case, that's exactly what happened. I mm-hmm. mean, we, we we went in and had a great meeting and, you know, I had documenta- supporting documentation for everything that I was asking that I thought was reasonable and necessary 
And, you know, I walked out feeling 100% supported. I thought it was a fantastic meeting. And uh, to find a few weeks later it arrives in the mail with so much money taken out. And I just looked at it. I was like, where did I go wrong? Like, what, what have I done that I got this? You know, I rang my LAC straight away and just said, you know, what's happened? And, oh, I'm really sorry, but, you know, that went to the higher powers and I have nothing to do with that and I'm really sorry. But um, And that's true. They recommend and then someone else looks at their recommendation and makes a decision and there's kind of no communication about that. No, there was none. And, 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 he, and he said to me, you know, uh, unfortunately, you got someone who, who just is really harsh with plans. And I just I said, so it literally is the luck of the draw of who lo- looks at it at the end. And I said, that's just not good enough. I said, you know, I now have to, what do I do? You know, I, I can't, we cannot, this, we can't make this work. And he said, well, you can go for a review. And I'm just sitting there going, and so what's that going to take now? And the energy, again, you know, it just constantly requires mm. you work full time. You try, you know, you have to try and find these extra hours to, to prepare for these things. And that's what I had to do. I just had to spend the time, go for the review, and I didn't get everything, but I got enough that I felt that I was at least listened to. But um, like I was talking about before, I do find that they seem to stand up and listen, you know, and, I'm, and no one wants this problem. But, um, you know, since COVID, we, we've had much more pressing issues than, than speak mm-hmm. to no team because behaviours have started to set in anxiety set in you know we've had to you know really look at the important stuff to us in terms of being able to just get her to be able to go back out into the community and and manage let alone worry about improving her speech or Mm. her skills in cutting in the kitchen or you know that sort of thing I mean now we're finally settling into that again but it's been really tough but but they did stand up and listen. I mean, I, I couldn't spend behavioural support money during COVID. Mm. You know, you can't have any, she can't go anywhere and she's she's in the home, you know, 24-7 for two years. I mean, mm. it's just, it was crazy. And they took that completely out of her, the package. I was just like, we can't do without behavioural support. We need it more now than we ever have. Mm. What an emotional bloody roller coaster that is. Oh, mm. You know, it's, it's training tough. for you and the family as well. You know, it really is, and I yeah. and I think that's where um, where they get people because number one, you may not understand the system and therefore know how to fight. Number two, if you do understand the system and you know how to fight, you mightn't have the energy or the time, and and you know more rarely you've got the people who need to fight for it but and and to go I've just got to do this I have to find the time and and do it so um we've just got a little bit of time left and I just wanted to um just quickly touch on autism and the national autism strategy that the government's talking about one of the things that uh, the ALP was quoting in its um policy documents was that which I found really shocking about three up to three percent of the population apparently is on the spectrum but People with autism experience some of the poorest outcomes of our community in terms of 
life expectancy and there's a 20-year um, life expectancy gap. Did you know that? <laughs> I was going, really funny fell over. That shocked me. Yeah. I was what really do you mean a 20, like to cut off 20 years from a normal yeah. life expectancy? Life expectancy. I think um, that it probably extends across all disability. I wouldn't be yeah. surprised. It's not something I've ever yeah, wanted it, to set my mind to, really. Because I mean, it, it you know, it's horrible. Like it could be more something like um, people who were twice exceptional. So, for instance, I know you were saying before, some of you, that your your child is has an intellectual impairment as well as mm-hmm. autism, which is the same as. He has a syndrome that has a thousand other things going on. So um, possibly because autism is a part of so many syndromes. Could be. All of those, you know, anyone with autism makes up that statistic. And health care for people with a disability, you know, who don't have the capacity to understand what's going on, who refuse. You know, I was talking to someone whose son had a, a seizure, their first ever seizure, and they went to hospital and, you know, none of us will be surprised about this, but they couldn't get any scans because, the, you know, the, there wasn't the strategies to help the child, so they went home without being scanned. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of health issues get missed because it's just too hard. It's just too hard. When they talk about autism, they're also talking a lot about, I've seen other stuff around mental health and autism and life expectancy. And as someone that is diagnosed with autism and also works professionally within the industry, there's there's a lot of talk about people that are in the industry or in mainstream jobs in, in the world who have autism and, you know, or are neurodiverse and that kind of thing. And the pressure's put on them to be, to act normal within that, that world. Like I work in the disability industry. I used to work for an, an autism Pacific company. And mm. I can tell you the, the least understanding people in that, some of the least understanding people were support coordinators in that company that were, and they would do very, very terrible things. And then when, they talk about, oh, you go, you know, you go see a psychologist or something like that to, to deal with it. The psychologists don't understand mm. psychology doesn't work on people with autism because mm. we've already pretty much thought about everything before but before we've had the meltdown. That's already happened. Mm. We don't need you to talk about what we've already worked with. We just mm. need the strategies. So uh, you do see a lot of people with autism when it goes to mental health or when it goes to that purpose that there is a higher suicide rate there's also because of the way medications are used in children in relation to adults. So a lot of medications um, that are given to autistic children are based on focusing and making them focus. But if you then get into an adult life where you're having constant pressure put on you by society and you're given drugs to make you focus, yeah. what do you focus on? Mm. You, you focus on that negativity in your life. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of um, misdiagnosis of medication in people with autism too and um the strategies put around them as adults so yeah that's that's just my sorry that's my opinion um but but i think i think that's got a lot to and if you also look at um if you go to data mapping around disabilities across australia and the percentages around what the ndis was proposing in growth um the highest level for pretty much every region in australia is autism which is yeah it's actually quite a big a yeah. massive chunk and yeah. it's because a lot of you know it's got 
it says, I think it's autism and neurodiversity is what they call mm-hmm. it into. So they're also bringing in people with Tourette's. They're also bringing in a lot of these, you know, and you know, OCD. They'll they'll drag. They're bringing in a lot of other things to make to make autism a very very big word. If mm. you think about like twenty years ago, the word autism wasn't a word. Mm. It's it's it. You know, you had Angelman syndrome. You had you know Kabuki makeup syndrome. You had fragile X, and then now they're, they're all genetic disorders, obviously. Um, mm. But now they just say, oh, look, that person. You know, they might have Prada Willie. That person has autism. Mm. where so it's been given as a blanket to cover all these disorders mm. and no one focuses on the individual disorder mm. that that person actually has they just go they got autism yeah yeah well uh it's a big group but it's um a big diverse group but it's also a big gap in longevity mm-hmm. on 20 years i thought it was a bit um interesting i'm just interested you know i, I think um a lot of the um us have got kids with autism and what what have been the challenges in terms of getting health and medical experience and I think you said you know getting scans is difficult I you know I remember taking Louis to you know have an AEG and you know the them calling for he was only a little kid you know they were calling for nurses to come and hold him down while they gave him some Finergan to you know sedate him a bit and just completely over the top I've got a whole list blood tests Yes. Yes. injections yeah <laughs> mm. even and, yeah and all of those rooms blood have, pressure have flickering lights in them yeah <laughs> like and and shiny floors and like not nothing's actually built for an autistic person mm. um anyway anything that's a clinical setting the way it's built is not appropriate for someone with those neurodiverse to enter mm. the space in any way whatsoever right. even if they put things in place it just doesn't it's just not built mm. well just we had COVID yeah. um vaccinations didn't we um <laughs> we, we were around a bloody circle that was a nightmare it was a nightmare and then in the end we found that that we had um people that would come to the house and they would get it done to get even to get you know um rat testing wasn't it to get done oh my God, rat testing, testing. yes yeah. and i had somebody come to the door who was lovely but you know, rang the GP, rang the, you know, the um, yeah. the government helpline. They had no idea and they couldn't, you know, they just said, well, go into your doctor or go into the test centre. And I said, he can't queue up for bloody two hours and go into that setting and have somebody stick it up his nose. It's just, it's just not going to happen. You know, just complete, completely not designed to help. And no understanding. understanding. It's even a couple of weeks ago, Matthew was quite unwell with gastro and I thought, well, and nearly dehydrating. So I rang nurses on call and, of course, I said go to emergency. But, of course, gastro isn't life-threatening, so I can't send him to emergency and sit there for five, six hours because no one understands, obviously, that he can't wait. And that I think that's the problem on the medical side, isn't it, that you kind of not surprised by those statistics because even dentists, Lisa and I were talking the other day, I can't remember the last time Matthew had a proper dentist appointment. So we're actually taking him in and they're going to sedate him. He's going to spend the day in hospital, do his teeth, I'll do bloods. But, you know, can I continue to do that every year for him? You know, it's, yeah, very difficult. And is that level of sedation good for him? Absolutely not. like there's only so much you can go under before it actually affects your life expectancy. That's right. And, and the the expectation is that, oh, look, we can just make them sleep 
so that then we can we can we can do what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not like that's not right. If you've ever spoken it? to an anesthetist, they always ask how many times you've been anesthetized mm-hmm. before because every time has more risk with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they're knocking you completely out, in theory, mm-hmm. you're anesthetized. Absolutely, and almost I'm the easy way out, doesn't it? Mm. I, I'm sure that everyone here would agree that the hardest part of being a parent of one of these kids is just the absolute lack of understanding out there. Mm. Um, so I, I was at a doctor myself about myself a week ago or something, and um, I mentioned having and how it was pretty tough at the moment. And she said to me, oh, well, do, you know, you, you're going to have to do something about your son. It's the first thing you have to do. And, uh, you know, there's that government um, insurance thing, you know, you should look into that. And I was just like, oh, my God, are you serious? Yeah. Anyway, I didn't bother talking to well, her the about other, it. But the other is, like, are you doing something for yourself? It's like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one too, yeah. Okay, well, so one of the things that we could, um, that needs to be considered is perhaps, you know, design health settings that are designed mm-hmm. around people with autism who have people who are trained in understanding the challenges as well as having, you know, the space designed in such mm-hmm. a way and the process is designed in a way that isn't going to be triggering or exacerbate their symptoms. Mm, absolutely. Like- so if you were able to create you know, a few of these settings, something that really has to be looked at is, you know, all of us are talking about different procedures that our kids have to have and talking about, you know, Chris's anaesthetizing or sedating Matthew just to be able to clean his teeth. If he's having a sedation, what what else can you do at the same time? So, mm. you know, had an operation many, many years ago and she had to have another procedure literally two months later and I was saying at that time she's having a general anaesthetic. Can I please get two specialists in the one room at the same time rather than putting her under another general anaesthetic two months later? I could could not. You would think I was asking to move mountains. There was no way... Two specialists were going to try and coordinate the time to be able to do that. But if you could have a space where you could, you know, James talked about non-flickering lights, non-shiny floors, you know. It actually, it's really interesting listening to you, but it, it, uh, um, as you were speaking, I, I was thinking something that really I would um, like to see addressed is the individual's you know, capacity to kind of choose what's best. So the, in, in our case, because we are guardians, we should be able to choose for him and have it funded what works best for him in terms of moving uh, any sort of short-term accommodation because mm-hmm. twice we tried to get him to go to an accommodation and twice didn't work out. And I'm sure you have similar experiences. He's not going back. We wouldn't, mm-hmm. there's no way that we can get him to, to try again. So we have to, if we want to have any time off, which has been part of our plan for a few years, but have, you know, interrupted by COVID, we have to go. And we actually think, well, that's what suits He needs to be here. But, you know, just people don't understand that, mm-hmm. including NDIS, really. It's just, he's not going to go somewhere else. 
Mm. He's happy here. He's safe here. His anxiety goes through the roof if we try and sort of do anything else. He stayed away from us um, one night recently. It's the first time ever. Went to Phillip Island and stayed with his sister. She took him for a night and that was a big breakthrough. But that was his sister, you know, and, and um, yeah, it's not an easy transition for any of us. But, yeah, we'd, we'd like the NDIS to kind of recognise that every every participant needs to be treated individually in that and the choices, what what works for one doesn't work for another. So NDIS have made it very clear that they will fund a short-term accommodation, but they they won't fund a place. Uh, you know, they, that's it. That's all that they will fund. So, and that kind of doesn't work for us. But on Amazing. that note, I need to go because otherwise... My yeah, no, we all need to go. I think no, no, you go. We all need to go. Thanks, ladies. It's been... Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thanks for being part of the Loop Me In community today and joining our conversation on raising children with disabilities. Join us for the next episode on some of your favourite platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you would like to support us, please recommend the Loop Me In podcast to your network of parents, carers and providers. If you would like us to cover a topic or invite a guest to chat, please email us at contact at loop-me-in.com.au or go to our website at loop-me-in.com.au. If you've got any feedback, please let us know so we can improve and cover issues you want. And of course, if anything in the podcast today has raised concerns for you, you can contact Beyond Blue on 1300 224636 or Lifeline on 131114.